there's all these regionalisms. You know, some people say soda, some say pop, some say Coke. Mike and I recently came across uh, a couple words that we say differently that we didn't realize were regional. I'm from Minnesota, and I say the splits. And when I'm doing that gymnastics move, I'm from West Virginia, I say I'm doing a split, singular. Which is incorrect. No, it isn't. Uh, So we wanted to ask you guys, uh, this is what you said. Hey guys, I'm Katie from Washington State, but I'm calling from Germany, and it's called the splits. Hi, I'm Kate from upstate New York, and in my case, it's called, okay, I got this, I got, mm, no, no. Can't go any further. Also, around here, it's called a split. I'm Cameron, and I'm from uh, Newfoundland, and it's definitely called the splits. Hi, I'm Carrie from upstate New York, and it's called a split. Hi, this is Carrie. I'm from Buffalo, and it's called a split. It's weird that uh, I think 90% of our listening audience are Carries from upstate New York. This, I don't think this is an accurate representation of the whole country. Anyway, it seems like uh, the one person to settle this debate is the most decorated gymnast in Olympic history, yeah. Shannon Miller. Shannon, whatever you say, we will abide. We will go with it. Well, you will be happy to know that both terms are absolutely correct. Uh, you know, gymnastics is one of those things. It's it's fairly um, regional with, with some of the words and terminology that we use. So... You may say the split sometimes, and you may say, oh, that's a great split. Uh, so really, everything that you say with regard to that is absolutely correct, depending on what part of the country you're in. Now, Shannon, you're right. That, that is a victory, really, for both of us. But the problem <laughs> is, is it robs one of us from being right. Yep. Yes, yes, it does. And that's something you'll have to live with. <laughs> but this, when I hear the splits, that sounds crazy to me. It sounds completely wrong. Well, and sometimes it matters. Kind of over time, things change. Uh, I remember, you know, there's certain skills that we do in gymnastics um, that are named after other athletes. And I know, um, you know, 10 years ago, we would call the skill one thing. Uh, There's a certain move on the uneven bars where you release the bar, do a flip, and you catch the bar. And we would always call that a hect, a reverse hect growing up. Now it's called a Tukachev named after the athlete that first, first did it. Do you have anything named after you? I do have a couple moves named after me, which is fun. So wait, how would you say, so um, if I were going to do that, what would I say? I'm going to go do a triple Shannon Miller? Go, <laughs> you just say, I'm going to go do the Miller. Oh, that's oh, awesome. Nice. And it's yeah. not the Millers. It's a Miller. It's the Miller or a Miller. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're welcome. Glad I cleared that one up. Yeah. This is How to Do Everything. I'm Ian. And I'm Mike. On today's show, we'll tell you how to get a free haircut. And we'll tell you how to catch a rattlesnake. But first, we got a question from Brittany. How do I make a really good paper airplane? As it turns out, an attempt on the paper airplane flight world record was made just last week by paper airplane designer John Collins. He didn't throw it himself. He got a professional quarterback to throw it for him. This is how it went. There it is. There it is. We are all over that one. That's going to do it. Get up there, get up there, get up there, get up there, get up there. So he did it 226 feet, 10 inches. John Collins joins us now. So, John, we should say we, as you can hear, we're playing the sound of the world record attempt, and they're still cheering. (laughs) They were so sick and tired of waiting for us to throw an official throw. It was like, ah, good, they're finally done. (laughs) All right, so uh, tell us about designing this plane. 
what happened is that two weeks before we made our official attempt uh, last August, which failed, by the way, uh, we were having planes that went all the way, halfway down the hangar, made a U-turn, and came back. And that was a really disheartening moment. Yeah. <laughs> That's got to be like the first Aborigines throwing a boomerang when, when their weapon starts coming back at them. It's not a nice moment. <laughs> you know? uh, so Bob Withrow, who's kind of a genius guy, he's designing the ignition system on the, uh, the spaceship that they're making down there at Scaled Composites in the spaceship company. He surmised that as the plane is slowing down, as the paper aircraft is slowing down, the air is adhering further and further back on the wing. So, in other words, it's speed-dependent where the air is coming off the wings. It's only laminar to a certain point or approximating laminar flow to a certain point on the wing. And the slower the plane goes, the further back the air can stick to the wing. And this idea that the air would adhere to the wing in different places allowed me to change, effectively, the dihedral angle in flight. I I have to say I am already astonished at the number of... Um, technical words that I don't understand that goes into paper airplane making. <laughs> it's uh, it's one of those things where you can just go nuts with the aerodynamics. So, John, why don't you walk us through making this record-breaking airplane? And, and we should say this is potentially just horrible, horrible radio we're, we're about to make here. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is... Uh, you know, I'm just going to warn you now that the tape has to get cut into 14 pieces. You start by making a big X in the page, um, which is two diagonal folds, which is putting the top of the paper against the side of the paper. So it doesn't matter which direction you do first. Let's just take the top and put it against the left-hand side, then you unfold that, and then you take the top... All right, so this and put it is the right about the point where both that. Mike and I gave up. It's just about impossible to follow along. Um, so as you can hear, we've just faded down the instructions, and we're going to jump ahead to another question. Okay, John, now tell us generally, what makes a good paper airplane? Well, I tell you, I, you know, there's one simple thing that a lot of people miss, and that is just starting with a really good piece of paper. And what is a good piece of paper? Well, it, it turns out some of the best paper to make paper airplanes with. In fact, it's what I used for all the planes in both of my books. Um, you take a piece of paper that's been photocopied onto once. Now, why would that make it any better? Well, it turns out there's the heat process in the photocopier heats the paper just a little bit. That helps stiffen it. Wow. And, and the uh, ink from a photocopier is actually a microfine layer of plastic, which actually helps uh, the paper hold a crease. So you want to make a good paper airplane, that is what you use. Wow. Um, and also, I did something called candling, which is, you know, like when you look at an egg to make sure it hasn't uh, been fertilized or whatever, you could kind of see the flaws, you know, if you hold a light up behind it. I did the same thing with the paper and make sure there were no flaws anywhere in the paper. And occasionally, you know, one out of like a hundred sheets, you'd have a little like interior scar that wasn't visible just looking at the paper. So, um, the, using the light bulb to sort of make sure the paper's perfect, using it to sort of heat the paper a little bit, you know, make sure it's all nice and dry before you start folding. All that counts. You know, it's, you know, if you're going for a world record, definitely. So coming up with a new design, do you uh, just fold and try things and fold and try things? Or will you, like, be lying up at night, lying awake at night, and think of a design and, and know how it's going to fly? Well, you know, here's where it starts to sound a little bit insane. Uh, <laughs> All right. And so what, what I can do now, because I've been doing it for so long, is have an idea for an air, airplane. And then, and again, this is going to sound weird. I can sort of fold it in my head and, uh, you know, fold the paper mentally, watch it sort of come together mentally a little bit. And then if it looks like it's going to work, and then, then I'll go ahead and do it with paper. So wow. um, it's... 
you know, it's really sort of taken over my brain to a disturbing degree, I think. <laughs> it's Wait, not so, normal. I get that. <laughs> well, let, let me ask you this, John. I have a, a son who's just now into building airplanes. Can you give him uh, one tip? And we could, this would also work for Brittany, who sent us this question. Uh, for when they're building airplanes, one tip that will just blow everybody else's away? You know, it's not the building. It, it really boils down to the adjusting. Okay. So I would say pick an easy one to fold. Look at how it's flying. Give it a couple of test flies. Is it veering left? Is it veering right? There are really simple ways to adjust for that. Uh, and, and I'll give you the simplest one. The back of the plane, the tail of the plane, where that vertical surface is, uh, that's the fuselage. If you're looking at the back of the plane. If you want to get your plane to turn left, you bend that a little bit to the left. If you want to get it to turn right, you bend that a little bit to the right. And then extrapolate from there. If it's turning left, give it a little right rudder to straighten it out. Perfect. All right, great. Well, I'll take that home, and we'll be prepared to dominate first grade. (laughs) Full domination. We will accept nothing less than full domination of first grade. (laughs) All right. So uh, to sum up, photocopy, candle, fold carefully, make minute adjustments, and uh, get a arena football quarterback to throw for you. And <laughs> if you're going for the record, yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, this has been fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, can you do a rattlesnake sound for me? What is it? It was like those more, more rattly. That right? was kind of a purr. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of close. You're getting there. As you probably know, we're just a couple weeks away from the National Rattlesnake Sacking Championships, where competitors risk life and limb to get rattlesnakes into a bag. And this seems like a skill everybody should probably know how to do. On the line with us now is sacking champ Jackie Bibby. Uh, Blythe talked to him earlier this week, and he answered his cell phone from the doctor's office where he was getting treated for a snake bite. So, Jackie, what happened? I was bundling the snakes together because I do a stunt where I suspend the snakes in my mouth from their tails. I put their tails in my mouth and hold them. It's one of my world records, and right. I was doing that stunt, and one of the snakes crawled up some of the other snakes, and he was kind of behind them, and I couldn't see him. And he snuck up those snakes and bit me in the hand. He just got you in the hand? <clears throat> yes, sir. How did you come to be putting snakes in your mouth? I was doing the Maritovic show several years ago, and we were attempting to put a snake in my face, which is a stunt that I do where my partner has to take a coiled-up snake, rattlesnake, and lay it on my face. And the snake was not staying coiled. He kept trying to get away, and he was crawling. I was laying on a sleeping bag inside the studio floor, and the snake was trying to crawl away from me. And my partner just had his tail in his hand, and he just kind of, as a, as a lark, he stuck the tail in my mouth. So I was laying there with the snake trying to crawl down my chest, and I had the snake's tail in my mouth, and he couldn't crawl away. <laughs> and Marty Povich and the studio audience were freaking out. And so I, we thought, well, that's kind of cool. That's fun. <clears throat> and we set it up and did it. I did it with six snakes in my mouth. We call that a new world record. Of course, there's nobody else doing it at that time, of course. And so then I started doing it. Now I'm up to 12. Last time I, I did it, I did it with 12. So I'm a double where I started. So how do you do that? So are they? Do you have the? You don't have the heads of twelve snake heads in your mouth. No, the heads are dangling down, and, and they're hanging down. And, and then I bundle the tails together in my hand, and then put them in my mouth, and, and hold them in my mouth suspended. I had to put my arms out like in the sign of a cross, and then hold my arms away from them, and then keep them suspended for over ten seconds. So, and I'm guessing this puts the snake's mouths right at about waist level. Yes, <laughs> pretty close. 
Now, you you mentioned that the first time you, you did this, put a snake in your mouth, you were lying in a sleeping bag on the set of the Maury Povich show. You also hold the record for uh, the spending, uh, what having the most snakes in a sleeping bag? Yes, 150. W- were you able to fall asleep? Uh, no, I didn't, I didn't take no naps during yeah. that time. And yeah. I also hold the record for doing it head first at 24. Ah, so when you're in the sleeping bag, do the snakes think you're just another snake? They just kind of crawl around. I can feel them flicking their tongue against my ear and my head. <laughs> oh, my. So let's talk about the uh, the competition, uh, which you've won more times than anyone can, can count, uh, the National Rattlesnake Sacking Competition. Tell us what, what this competition is, what, what you're trying to do there. I got started in that in 1969. So I've been doing it for 42 years. And what we do, we have a two-man team uh, which gets in a pit, and they hand us a sack with 10 rattlesnakes in it. We dump the snakes out, and we have two minutes in which to arrange the snakes. And during that two-minute time, we get ready. We raise our hand. They shoot a gun. We drop our hand. They shoot a gun. All four judges start to talk to their stopwatches. You have to pin each snake in such a way that you immobilize his head. Pick him up, put him in the sack. Your partner holds the sack open and close him right there and also guards you from the other snakes. And if you get bit, you get a five-second penalty. And if you don't pin a snake properly, you get a five-second penalty. Doesn't it seem like getting bit should be its own penalty? <laughs> One of the ironies of this particular sport is that you get a penalty if you get bit. So when, is it? do you guys ever, when you're in that uh, pit, is it anybody's job to suck the poison out of the other guy? We use an extractor kit, which is a device designed by Dr. Glass of San Antonio, which sucks. It causes 750 millibars of suction, which is almost a complete vacuum. It has cups on top of it. You can change out the cups, and you put it over the fine hole to press the plunger, and it sucks. And do you so do that's the... what we do when we're bitten is a first aid device. Do you do that in the pit, or do you wait till you're out? We do it in the pit, yeah, as soon as we're bitten. Because the quicker you get it on, the more venom you can get out, and that's precisely what we're attempting to do, is extract some of the venom back out of the wound before it can cause harm. <laughs> and then do you continue sacking after that, or is that you pretty much your round is over? Well, it kind of depends on, on how bad how bad you're bitten. Uh, one year when I was in the sacking contest, I received a bite, a pretty serious bite, which hospitalized me, and... Although I got a five-second penalty for receiving the bite, I was fast enough that I still won the contest. So they came up to the hospital <laughs> and presented me with my trophy and my check, and a newspaper reporter took a photograph of it to put it in the paper of me receiving my presentation in the hospital bed of winning the contest. When you show up at the hospital, are they like, oh, Jackie's here again. Get his room ready. <laughs> <laughs> when I was in the Fort Worth Hospital just about a week ago, one of the guys there that was an expert on snake bite was just excited. He came to my room. He couldn't wait to meet me. He said, <laughs> I knew exactly who you were. I used pictures of you in my presentations, but he had never met me. So he took pictures with me and got autographs and stuff while I was in the hospital. Wait, he, he's a snake bite specialist, and he was getting your autograph because you've been bitten by so many snakes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're like a legend. A little bit. Well, Jackie, thank you so much. This is a, an education in uh, herpetological disasters. Thanks. <laughs> you bet. It was a pleasure, guys. Nice talking with you. And now it's time for Free Blythe, 
where our producer Blythe goes out and gets things for free and teaches you how to do it. All right, Blythe, what do you got for us today? So this week I uh, I went and got a haircut for, I will say, nearly free. Mm. Uh, but I found this site called salonapprentice.com, okay. which is mostly lists in big cities, but it lists... Uh, apprentices who need hours. They need to cut a certain number of volunteers' hair. So this is somebody who's not a professional uh, like stylist or barber, and they're cutting your hair for a reduced rate. Right. And I asked about where in the spectrum of training uh, they had to be in order to cut human hair, uh, and, and, and this is what I found out. So you start out on actual mannequins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of like beauty school, start on your mannequins and then move on to real people, which is always a blessing. So <laughs> mannequins are good for practice, but they're, they're not like a human head. So. <laughs> and I was in there before the salon opened, so half the girls were cutting humans and half the girls were cutting mannequins, and the mannequins are terrifying looking. Oh. Yeah. So this person is, uh, they've had some training, not much. Is there like a teacher kind of watching the whole thing or what? There was a teacher there. I asked her how involved uh, she was in the process. So will somebody be checking my hair when you're done? To... Yes. yes, Dahlia will check it. She's awesome. A little intimidating sometimes, but she she's an awesome teacher, so she'll kind of... I had know. her talk through more what she was planning with my hair, and they can only do a, a straight line cut at this point. That's the level she's at, which made me very comfortable. Yeah. Nothing crazy. She said she, she thought an inch because of how long it had been clearly since I got my hair cut last. Yeah. Uh, it, it ended up being one of those things where it was like an inch and then, oh, we better straighten out this side, this side, this side, this side. So really? I'm glad it was an inch to start. So when the professor came over, did, was there a lot of correcting that had to be done to your hair? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh. So how long uh, did this haircut take compared to uh, the average haircut that you get? I would say twice as long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but it, it took ha- a long time, but it was fascinating. And it's yeah. half the price, right, at least. Right, so this this one costs $10. You can get, there's a few on this uh, particular site, salonapprentice.com, where you can get them for free. Sometimes you have to be willing to do a pixie cut yeah, or a graduated bob. Oh. Uh, but th- there's also uh, ads on Craigslist sometimes for hair models. That's what you have to look for, an ad for a hair model. Wh- okay, wait, so I go to Craigslist, I look for an ad for a hair model... And that that's actually, I'm signing up to be a guinea pig at a beauty school? Exactly. Yes, you're a hair model. You're a client, but since we're apprentices, we refer to you as models. Okay. Yeah. But there's no actual, like, need oh, to model the hair? No. <laughs> no. No. No uh, photography or anything. Just. <laughs> Did you just, go from being, like, super excited and then... Like, hey, I'm a model. But like, oh, no, you're not. Well, I thought there might be some before and after shots, like in the dentist, yeah. but there weren't. All right. Well, this was, this is great. I, I I would do this. So what's the website again? Salonapprentice.com. Okay, salonapprentice.com, or I can look on Craigslist for uh, seeking hair models. Exactly. All right. Yeah, it's a great way to get a haircut and to experience life as a model. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Blythe. Yeah, no problem. You know what? Let me ask you one more question, Blythe. How do you rid the sweat? After the body bliss. Just a good towel off. That makes sense. You know what that sound means for the last time? It's Canada Day. It's time for the world's best worst song competition. 
you have, over the last eight weeks, I find it hard to believe, over the last eight weeks, you have sent us songs that you love but recognize other people do not. And um, this is the, the final round before we, we decide the champion. Last week, we had Cisco's The Thong Song against Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire. And this ended up being the most lopsided victory yet. It was almost unanimous for Chad's pick, The Thong Song. Congratulations, Chad, and uh, better luck next time, terrible Billy Joel song. This week, Cheryl has nominated I Want It That Way by the Backstreet Boys. So I picked this song because in the mid to late 90s, I would say that like 99% of all teenage girls love the Backstreet Boys, myself included. Right. But probably the rest of the population who were not teenage girls probably hated them. Yes. I think I'm amazed that I actually still know the words to the song, and I sing along with it, which is a little bit embarrassing. I say go with it. No, don't be embarrassed. Just, you know, have it your way. Or have it the that, way you want that it. That way. Yep. That way. Yeah. That way. You are my fire, the one desire, believe when I say I want it that way. But we That's Cheryl's pick, the Backstreet Boys. They are going up against Leanne Rimes' How Do I Live? That was picked by James. In the car when uh, my buddy and I were driving cross-country, uh, that song, that's the reason it's my my, uh, my favorite worst song, is we were driving cross-country and it was on every station every second that we were driving. <laughs> so now, did you guys both enjoy the song? Yes. Is there any particular passage or moment in the song that, that uh, makes it stand out to you? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, the Leanne Rhymes version is whenever she sings it, she sings, How Do I Live Without Chew? And uh, so it it always made us think about uh, just a mental picture of Leanne Rhymes uh, with a big dip of snuff in her lower lip. <laughs> Okay, so that's the final round of the Best Worst Song Contest. Send us your choices at howto at npr.org. Or you can put it on our Twitter or Facebook page. That does it for this week's show. What we learned today, Mike? I learned that there is no correct answer when it comes to doing the splits or doing a split. I know. I'm a little, I'm a little disappointed by that. I wanted to either know I was wrong or, or know I was right. I'll think about that next time I do a somersaults. I think you've only proven my point. What was your points? I learned that there there is a right way to put a live rattlesnake into your mouth. I would have thought any way would be wrong. Yeah. 
I think the other lesson that we learned from Jackie was that if you're ever on the Maury Povich show and things aren't going right, just put whatever it is in your mouth. There's never a moment when something is getting away from me where I feel like, I know the solution. Get it in my mouth. Yeah, I mean, unless it's a sandwich. How to Do Everything is produced by Blythe Haga with technical direction from Lorna White. Our intern this week is Kate Casey, who I think is sporting a graduated bob. Yeah. It's just so sad how many bobs never graduate. Yeah. Get us your questions at howto at npr.org. Or visit our website at howtodoeverything.org. I'm Ian. And I'm Mike. Thanks. That sandwich just won't sit still on my face.